All right, it's time for us to open our Bibles together, so I'd encourage you to get one out, either your own or you can take one off of the pew in front of you. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, today we close out the first chapter of this wonderful book, Ephesians. As usual, our text, our main text at least, will not be on the screens behind me, so I'd encourage you to look at it in your own copy of the text. We'll be referring back to these verses time and time again, and then any other texts, other Bible verses that we refer to will be on the screen behind me. Uh, So turn with me to Ephesians, if you will. Now, have you ever noticed, as human beings, how we are so desperate to find someone that we can lift up to a place of ultimate prominence, and then we we all want to bask in their glory? This is the, the fascination that we have with celebrities, right? This is human nature for us. Even though many of us might look at celebrities and think, I can't believe they're famous, We have a natural human tendency to lift someone up and to build someone up to a place of national prominence, worldwide prominence, so that we can bask in their glory and so that we can look and see how great they are. We want this in our hearts. We've done this to figures of the past. For instance, you might study a little bit of history. One figure that we did this to a little bit was Winston Churchill around the time of World War II. We needed a foil to Adolf Hitler, and Churchill became the one that we all gravitated toward, and people are still fascinated with the man. Recently in my life, we have, we have perhaps not done this with anybody as much as we have with Michael Jordan, right? In the 90s, he became the most famous person in the world, bar none, And you saw this so much so with him that the media took great pains to hide his flaws from the people, from all all of the world, right? We didn't want to know that he had flaws. We didn't want to think he was human. We wanted to think he was superhuman. We wanted to think he was perfect. And so they did everything they could to hide his flaws. And anytime a media member would come out and say something bad about Michael Jordan, well, instead of turning on Jordan, we'd turn on the media member. Right? We wanted that person high and lifted up. Sometimes you'll see this with a modern infatuation with people, celebrities, and it, it almost borders on worship. Like in our days, you might think of someone like Beyonce or Oprah in recent years. One of the TV shows that highlights this, I think, is a TV show that's grown a cult following over the years since it's come on. It was The West Wing. Anybody remember this show, The West Wing? It's all about President Bartlett and his cabinet. You kind of get an inside view on how the White House works and all of the day-to-day operations and challenges that they face. Now, this show started in 1999, which was 23 years ago now, right? It's it's really, when you watch it, it, it looks like an old show. It's, it's square instead of in HD 16 by 9. It was a network show. It wasn't even on HBO or BBC, and so it can only be so long and all of that stuff. And yet people are still fascinated with it. There, there are podcasts today where they go through episodes of The West Wing, and people still love it. What is it about that show that still captivates people so much? Well, part of it is it's about politics, and we just cannot escape politics, can we? We keep getting drawn back into politics over and over again, no matter how long we live or when we live. Part of it is probably the, the writer. Aaron Sorkin is just a master at writing dialogues. So that's part of it. 
But I'm convinced that the main reason that show has remained so popular is this. It gave us a picture of the presidency the way it was always supposed to be. A picture of the presidency the way it was supposed to be. The president on that show has a dignity and a gravitas about him. He treats the office and the job and his duty before the American people with a proper weight and respect. There are times in the show where he's speaking and everyone just stops and gazes at him and is in awe at this larger-than-life figure who understands the moment better than anyone else. And it makes us long for another president like that, one that will bring the dignity back to the office. Will we ever see that again? I'm not sure. But we long for it. We want it. But on a, a deeper level, it's in our human nature to find a person And to lift them up to a place of ultimate prominence. To exalt them. And then to look to them for leadership. And much of our disappointment in celebrities or politicians or public figures comes from the fact that they never live up to our ideals. They just don't. None of them do. No matter how perfect we think they are. No one ever lives up to what we want in that one person exalted and lifted up. The ultimate leader, that ultimate example, that ultimate center of our attention and affections. No one ever lives up to it. So what's that tell you? We're always longing for that person, that one. But he exists. Let's read about him in our text today. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 19. This is the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. Now remember, verse 19 is coming in the middle of Paul telling the Ephesians what he's been praying for them. One of the the things he's been praying for them is that he wants them to know certain things. And verse 19 is one of those things. Paul wants them to know, let's go into verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his, God's, power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I want you to see this morning from our text three ways, primarily, three primary ways that God has exalted Jesus Christ. God has exalted Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at three ways. The first is that God raised him from the dead. You see that in verse 20? Verse 20, this power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You see, God has power over death. God has power over death, and he uses that power to work for his children. He has power over death, and he uses that power to work for us, his children. You see, as human beings, we very naturally fear death. We fear it. We fear death. It's the unknown. What will happen How will it feel? But more importantly, what will happen after? We subconsciously fear death. We do everything we can to postpone it. We spend billions, 
and I'm talking billions and billions on techniques and technology trying to fend off and fight off death. Hospitals and nursing homes and funeral homes. Now, we, we put it out of our minds, most of us. We want to put it out of our minds. Those places, hospitals, nursing homes, funeral homes, they might have to think about death quite often, but for the rest of us, uh-uh. That's what we pay them for. We want to put it out of our minds. We want to avoid it as much as we can. It used to be that every church had a cemetery beside it, right? You'd walk into the church doors, and on the way into the church, you'd see all those who had passed. It's not like that anymore. Most churches that are built now, it's it's far away from any mention of death. We don't want to talk about death. It used to be that all funerals were places to grieve, times to grieve. Now we've got people saying, no, we want to have a celebration. We want to have a celebration, right? We, we want to avoid everything that death has, has brought. We want to avoid even thinking about it. And no matter how hard human beings have tried, none of us has ever been able to decrease the death rate by even one fraction of 1%. Death comes for us all. And deep down, people fear it. Hebrews 2.15 tells us we are in slavery to our fear of death and we must be delivered from it. We must be delivered from that slavery to our fear of death. But God did what no man could do. God did what man cannot do. He defeated death. And he showed us that power by raising Jesus from the dead. He has power over death. Now did you know that when Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus. Remember the story in John 11? Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, when Jesus did that, it's interesting to note, he raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus would die again, right? He, he, he raised Lazarus from the dead only for Lazarus to have to die again. Lazarus had to die twice. But God raised Jesus from the dead never to die again. Never, ever to die again, which is how we will be raised in the end. But It's important to note, as Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus, we all recognize that verse in John 11, 35, often cited as the the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, right? But it also tells us in John 11 that Jesus, when he saw the people around the tomb weeping because of the death of Lazarus, that he was deeply moved. Now, you might read over that and just pass right on, but deeply moved there in the original Greek has connotations of not just being sad, but being angry. Jesus was angry as he saw what death was doing to the people around. He saw the sorrow that death was bringing. He was raging inside at death and the sorrow that it caused. Let me ask you, have you ever felt that? Have you ever raged at death on the inside? Have you ever felt that feeling like, this is not fair. This should not have happened. And it makes you mad when a child is taken from their parents and those years and milestones and memories are snatched away. Or when a spouse dies, your one true companion is snatched away from you, along with all the happiness and security that they brought. Or when a young person is cut down in the prime of their life, And they leave behind a family and kids are deprived of a dad or a mom. 
It's proper. It's right to feel this rage at death. This should not have happened. And that's what Jesus feels as he approaches the tomb of Lazarus. But the resurrection of Jesus shows us that God has started to undo death. God shows us at the resurrection of Jesus, it will not always be this way. You're right, it shouldn't have happened. Death is an enemy. Death is an intruder into the world because of sin, Genesis 3, right? In the day that they ate of it, they will surely die, God said. Death is an enemy and an intruder, but it will not always be this way. At the resurrection, God started to undo death. He has begun this work of ridding the world of death and its effects. That work will not be complete until Jesus returns, but it has started. And for ourselves, for death in and of ourselves, our own death, now, while we rage at the deaths of others, when it comes to our own death, if you're a Christian, it's no longer something you have to fear. We don't have to fear our own death anymore. In Christ, because of Christ, death becomes a path. It's not the enemy it once was. It becomes a path, a path to greater joy. It becomes a road we all must travel. Death even moves, because of Jesus, death even moves from being an ultimate enemy to now being a servant of God, a tool in his hand. Death is a tool in the hands of God that he can work for his own good purposes. Think about it. The coming of death reminds us that we must not attach ourselves to this world and its possessions. God is using death as a tool in his own hand for his own good purposes. The coming of death, think about this. The coming of death reminds us that we must turn to Christ and be made right with God before it's too late. God uses death as a tool in his hands now because of Christ. And now because of Jesus, death itself is the vehicle that ushers us into the presence of Jesus. And so there is a sense in which we welcome it. Right? Paul said to die and be with Christ is by far better than to remain here in this world. And yet he knew that he had to remain because God still had work for him to do. But to die and to be with Christ. Oh, to go be with Christ. What is my granddad and my grandma experiencing right now? Think of your loved ones. What do they see right now? What is that like? What is the feeling of never Never having any negative emotion, any negative thought, always satisfaction 100%. What is it like, right? Death becomes a tool in the Lord's hand because of Christ. God does this with all kinds of things, right? He takes what Satan intends for evil and he uses it for his own good purposes. And Jesus and his resurrection is the reason why we know that's true. God has exalted his son, Jesus Christ, by raising him from the dead. But notice also in verse 20, what else did God do? God has exalted Christ by seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God has seated Jesus at his right hand. Now this is an act of extraordinary symbolism. This is symbolistic. It's it's, uh, symbolism in a big way. If you read through your Bible and pay attention to every time it mentions God's right hand, God's right hand in your Bible, What you'll see is this is the place of unique authority and honor. God's right hand is the place in all the universe, the place of unique authority and honor. God is saying, this is the one above all others 
who gets to sit at my side and rule at my side. God's right hand. Notice the the language of honor and authority that we read even in our text right here. Verse 21, God has exalted Jesus far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, if you read through the book of Ephesians, you'll see that when Paul makes a phrase like this, rule, authority, power, dominion, he's speaking of the spiritual forces of evil. Jesus has been exalted above all the spiritual forces of evil. So, for example, in Ephesians 6, verse 12, we read, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so Jesus is exalted above all of those. All demons, Satan included, Jesus is exalted above them all with a power that they cannot match and with authority over them that they cannot escape. If you read through the Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, notice sometime, next time you do it perhaps, how demons speak to Jesus. You'll you'll especially see this in the book of Mark. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 23, it says, Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now that's a demon saying that. That's how he speaks to Jesus. Notice how he has to submit. Notice the authority that he recognizes and the power that he recognizes in Jesus. Or later in Mark chapter 3, it says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. The demons did that. Or in Mark chapter 5, verse 7, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Do you notice the power that Jesus has over these spiritual forces of darkness? And they acknowledge it. They have to. That's who he is. They have no choice. And this says in our text that Jesus has this power now. Not only did he have this power when he was on the earth, he has this power And this authority over them, even from his throne at God's right hand. And so, do not fear. Do not fear the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. They are there, and they are real. Do not make the mistake of thinking that they do not exist. That's one way that humans fall off the deep end of this. But the other way that we tend to fall off on this is we we, we become paralyzed in our fear of them. You do not have to fear if you are in Christ. Because this power that God has given Jesus, verse 19 tells us, is the same power he is working toward you. Do you see that? This is the power toward us who believe. The same power that he worked in Jesus, the same power that he gave Jesus, is the power he is working toward us. And so we do not fear, because greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world, 1 John. And it says there in verse 21, not only is Jesus above all rule and authority and power and dominion, he's above every name that is named. Above every name that is named. Now what's that mean? Name, right? 
Well, the name of Jesus. Well, that's, that's, that's good, but I mean, you can probably find some people on this earth, especially in Latin America and stuff, named Jesus. That name is still around. So what does it mean that his name is above every name? Well, in the Bible, talking about someone's name was often the same as talking about their glory or their renown. So, for example, a negative example in Genesis chapter 11. Remember the Tower of Babel and that story? Genesis 11, it says, Genesis 11, 4, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, it becomes clear in that story that they were in sin there, in trying to make a name for themselves. But notice how it uses the word name there. Or in Psalm 8, verse 9, a positive example. Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right? Speaking of someone's name is saying the same thing as their, their, their glory or their renown. Sometimes people would say, I come to you in the name of the Lord. Or oftentimes, especially in, in this world, in Bible times, people would use the name of some false god. Pagans would use the name, they would invoke it, the name of a false god, when they, they would say some kind of incantation or spell, and they would invoke the name of that false god as a way of kind of tapping into their power, right? But then in the New Testament, you see the apostles saying things like, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk to a lame man who was begging at a gate, right? The name is important. Now we, today... We understand that quote from Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves. Because we're, we're obsessed with that. We're obsessed with making a name for ourselves today. Perhaps it might be in business, right? I want to make a name for myself in this business, in, in this industry. Or in our careers. We want to be known as the expert in that area. Young people today are being fed this lie that your goal in life should be to make a name for yourself online. And if you can have a platform and tons of followers and get people to see your content, then you will be significant or you will be happy. But God tells us it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. Exalt yourself and he will humble you. Right? Make a name for yourself. He will humble you. But humble yourself. And God, in his time and in his way, will exalt you. God has exalted Jesus, who humbled himself more than any human being there ever was. God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. And what we must do is come to reject making a name for ourselves. We must come to reject making a name for ourselves and instead rejoice in the fact that Jesus is the name above all names. We must proclaim his name, not our own. Let's make a name for him and not ourselves. We must work for the spread of his glory and his influence. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. David wrote in Psalm 115, not to us. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory and honor because of your love and faithfulness. Do you want God to bless your work? 
I'm not just talking about where you go to work, your job. I'm talking about whatever you do in life. Do you want God to bless what you do? He's not going to do it until you learn to deny yourself. He's not going to do it until you learn to deny yourself, to reject making a name for yourself and put all your effort and energy into getting people to give the proper honor to his name. We do not make names for ourselves. We are not in the business of making a name for us. We are in the business of proclaiming and glorifying his name. Now, finally, notice, finally, under this second heading that God exalted Jesus by sitting him at his right hand, notice how it says in verse 22 at the very beginning, he put all things under his feet. God put all things under the feet of Jesus. This alludes back to Psalm 110, verse 1, where David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now notice that verse. David, who is the king of Israel, higher than anyone on the whole earth, writes that there are not just one above him, there's two above him. The Lord said to my Lord. Well, who's he talking about if he's the king of all of Israel? He's the highest exalted one on the earth. The Lord said to my Lord, it's the Father and the Son, right? Even in the Old Testament. But notice what he says. He says, sit at my right hand. We've seen that before. We've seen that here in our text in Ephesians. God says to Christ, sit at my right hand until what? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Picture your own enemies, Picture someone who is your enemy, or others, plural, who are your enemies. Those who have wronged you, those who have made fun of you, those who have slandered you, those who have made your life harder than it needs to be. What if you had them at your beck and call every time you wanted to put your feet up? You don't use an ottoman, you don't use a stool, you just say, excuse me, I'm going to put my feet up now. I need you to get down on all fours. Let me use your back, let me use your neck. Right? It's your enemies. Oh, yeah. This feels nice, doesn't it? This is satisfying. Now, let me just disabuse you of that, first of all. God's never going to exalt you like that, but he does Jesus. He does Jesus. God has exalted Jesus to that place where he makes Jesus' enemies a footstool for his feet, shames them, and puts Jesus in a, a proper position of authority over them. That is how God has exalted Jesus. And so all of that to say God has sat Jesus down at his right hand and exalted him to that place of prominence. But finally, the third way God has exalted Jesus, we see in verses 22 and 23. It says, God gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. God gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. Notice that. He said he gave Jesus to the church. Now, this isn't talking about John 3.16, God gave Jesus to the world because he so loved the world. This is talking about how he gives the resurrected, exalted Jesus to the church as their head. God has given Jesus to us as the head of us, his body. This power is working in us, and Jesus has been given to us. Now, what does it mean that Jesus has been given to the church as its head? What does that mean? 
Well, we could probably go on and on on that, but we're not going to spend all day. But let me just give you a few things. First, it means he's the ultimate leader. Jesus is our ultimate leader. And so we have elders who lead this church. But scripture tells us those elders are under shepherds. Under shepherds because there is a chief shepherd, right? Ultimately, whose church is this? It's Jesus' church, right? This is not... Your church is not my church. This is Jesus's church. Not just this church, the church, the global church. It's Jesus's church. He is the leader of our church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate leader. We are part of a movement that has as its leader the one whose name is above every name. The one who has his enemies under his feet. The one exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. He is our ultimate leader. But it also means he's our mediator. Jesus has been given to the church and he mediates for us. What does that mean? Well, Romans 8 tells us that Jesus is at God's right hand. And what's he doing when he's there? He's interceding for us. Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Meaning his presence there is a constant testimony before God that our sins are taken care of. Our sins are taken care of. We are blameless before God, not because of our own holiness, not because of our own good works or obedience, but because of Jesus's blood and the fact that it covers over our sins. He's interceding for us at God's right hand. Third, Jesus is our provider. God gave Jesus to the church and he is our provider. He gives the church everything it needs. Jesus gives us the power to fight and defeat sin. Jesus gives us the boldness to go and take the gospel to the world. Jesus gives us the hope of heaven and the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus gives us reconciliation to God. He made us right with God. And he gives us a ministry that we are to tell others how they can be the same. They can be reconciled to God at the same time. Notice the Great Commission from Matthew 28. What we call the Great Commission, Jesus giving this commission to his disciples at the end of the book of Matthew. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, it says, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now stop right there. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That that, that feels a little bit different now that we've looked at this text, does it not? That God has exalted Jesus to the place of prominence and authority above every other power and dominion. All authority has been given to Jesus. And he says that to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says, go therefore. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you see the connection between the beginning and the end of that great commission? The beginning, he says, I've got all authority in the whole world, in heaven and on earth. It's all been given to me, Jesus says. And then at the end, he says, I'm with you. I am with you. As you go, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who has power and authority over all the forces of darkness, he is with you as you go. And if he's with me, how, how bold can I be? What risks can I take? 
Therefore, go. Go, right? If he is with me, anything's possible. And so go and make disciples because the one who has all authority is going to be with you as you do. He will be with us. So let's go. The one who is with us is the one who defeated death. The one who is with us is the one who has authority and power over all spiritual forces of darkness. Sometimes I think Satan has such a tight grip on the unbelievers around me that there's no point. They're just not going to become Christians. Sometimes I think that. Sometimes I think, I've I've prayed for this forever. And I see these people around me in, in my family, my friends, in my community. Sometimes I really do fall to that, that thought that Satan's got such a tight grip on them, it's just never going to happen. But Jesus is with us as we go. Jesus is the one who defeated sin and death. Jesus is the one who has authority over all the spiritual forces of darkness. And so as we go to try to make disciples, we should have great expectations. We should have amazingly high expectations of what could happen because some of those people are going to get saved. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Jesus building his church does not depend on your skill as an evangelist. But he wants you to be a part of it. He wants to give you the privilege and the joy of being a part of helping people come into the kingdom. Jesus is going to do it, whether you're on board or not. But do you want to be part of it? Do you want to help? Do you want to have the joy of helping someone come to know Jesus? And you've got to understand, Satan and his demons have no power compared to the power that Jesus has been given over them. And so let's have great expectations as we share the gospel, as we go to try to make disciples. Jesus is our head. We are his body, the church. He's our head and we are his body. Think about a head and a body, just physically, right? That illustration. What's the purpose of the body? Well, the body acts out what the head decides. The head sees The head gives strength, right? It it takes in nutrients and gives it out. The head gives directions from the brain. The body acts. The head does all of those things, but the body acts it out. That's us. So let's go. Go. Be the body of Christ. Go do what Christ has decided we should do. Go act out his love. Go act out his death. Go act out his self-giving for the rest of the world. Go take his message. Make disciples. Love people in Jesus' name. Serve others selflessly. Glorify God. Let's be the body of Christ. Because the one who has all authority and power in heaven and on earth is with us as we go. Now we want to take some time as we conclude today's time in God's word. We want to take some time to go back to God in prayerful response. And so we're going to give a time for all of us here to go back to God in prayer right now. We want to spend just a few moments responding to God, every single one of us, in silent prayer. The Lord probably laid his truth on your heart a little bit different than he laid it on mine. 
And so we all need to be able to respond to this word. And we want to give you an opportunity to do that now as it just hit us, as it's fresh in our hearts and our minds. So I'd encourage you to spend this time praying to God, whatever comes into your heart from what we just heard. And as we respond to God, he hears all of our prayers. As we respond to God, he is pleased as we meditate on his word and we allow it to affect us. And we respond to him in the ways that we feel it is affecting us. And the ways that he feel, we feel he is convicting us. And so as we pray, let's respond to God individually and then we'll come back together. We'll have a time of invitation where those who need to respond publicly to God's word can do so. Let's pray.